Hello and welcome to another edition of the Talking Europe podcast series of the UCL European Institute. My name is Uta Steiger. I direct the European Institute here at UCL. And it is my great pleasure today to welcome my colleague Carlotta Ferrara degli Uberti, who is lecturer in Italian history at UCL School of European Languages, Culture and Society. And uh, we haven't had a historian in this series for quite some time, so I'm delighted to welcome you here today, Carlotta. Thank you and thanks for having me. A very brief context. Uh, Carlotta holds a PhD in history from the Scuola Normale Superiore in Pisa and from the University of Paris, um, Pantheon Sorbonne, um, which was awarded in 2006. But we're lucky to say that she joined UCL in 2014 and is here with us today lecturing on Italian history. Her main research interests continue to be in modern European and particularly Italian Jewish history and the study of the social and cultural relationships between majorities and minorities, particularly as they evolve in the context of nations and nationalisms. And this is, of course, the focus of the book that we are here to discuss today. Um, it is called Making Italian Jews, Family, Gender, Religion and the Nation, 1861 to 1918. And that came out with Palgrave in 2017. Carlotta, given that not everybody who's listening to this will be all that familiar with uh, Italian history, perhaps, let me just uh, ask you to begin with um, a question on the context and the historical period that you chose to study. It ends in 1918 with the end of the Great War, um, but it begins in 1861. Can you tell us a little bit about the significance of this year and the two concepts that are so intimately associated with it, the Risorgimento and Italian Jewish Emancipation? In uh, uh, Italian history, 1861 uh, has a very uh, important uh, meaning. It is a very important turning point uh, because 1861 is the year when, uh, on the 17th of March, uh, the uh, birth of the Italian kingdom uh, as a unified state, as a unified political entity, is officially uh, proclaimed. Um, so this is indeed a, a huge turning point. And it is very easy to um, uh, assign a precise date to such an event. Um, the Risorgimento, on the contrary, is something that is uh, more a, a process than a specific event. Uh, and uh, by Risorgimento, which in Italian means something like resurrection or rising again, of course, the rising again of the nation. With this word, uh, we identify uh, uh, the um, whole process, the struggle that uh, will end up uh, in the uh, political unification of the country. Um, so this is both a political process and a political conversation, but also a cultural process mm -hmm. and a cultural conversation. And uh, it is more difficult to assign precise dates to the Risorgimento, uh, but uh, many scholars would agree uh, uh, that the Risorgimento uh, uh, starts more or less at the end of the 18th century um, and ends uh, uh, 
1870 with the conquest of Rome, uh, which will become the Italian capital from 1871, uh, or um, with uh, the end of the Great War, 1918. So we can have different versions of the Risorgimento. And the link with uh, Jewish emancipation is, is a very strong one in the Italian case, uh, because uh, by emancipation we mean in this case, I mean in this case legal emancipation. Um, so the uh, uh, moment when uh, Jews are uh, granted the same uh, civil and political rights mm, as the other subjects or citizens. Uh, and uh, in the Italian case, uh, Jews are granted uh, civil and political rights, equal civil and political rights, um, in uh, uh, at the end of the 18th century, with the arrival of, French, of the French armies, then again in 1848, um, in uh, the constitutions that were granted by uh, the sovereigns of the pre-unitarian states, uh, but... Um, the majority of these constitutions are abrogated very soon between 1849 and 1852, and uh, only the Piedmontese constitution uh, survives. The Piedmontese constitution then becomes the Italian constitution, the constitution of the Kingdom of Italy. Um, so we can see that in the Italian case, the process of unification and the um, emancipation of the Jews sort of really go hand in hand. Mm -hmm. If we look at the chronology, um, the Italian unification is made of, uh, is a result of the uh, territorial mm -hmm. expansion of Piedmont. And with the territorial expansion of Piedmont, we have the extension of the Piedmontese legislation to the uh, new territories. Uh, that really situates us really well, because your book effectively um, both revisits the history of Italian unification in these early decades and also the history of Italian Judaism in the same period. And you do so uh, through the lens of nation building. That is, uh, as you put it in the book, how Jewish Italian communities sought to reconcile their Italianness on the one hand and their Jewishness on the other. Um, Interestingly, of course, the way that you go about it is not by attending to political history, but to cultural history. That is, by attending to texts that may be, as you graciously say in some points, not of the highest literary quality, perhaps, but, but texts which really reflect the views of those who are closely involved in, in uh, the institutions and the representations of, 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 of Judaism. Can you talk us through the kinds of sources that we are using and why you chose them? Yes, of course. Um, so my intent was to uh, try uh, to write the first cultural history of Italian Jewry uh, in this period. And it is not an easy task, of course. And uh, I really wanted to avoid the risk of uh, labeling people uh, sort of against their will. Um, so, for example, of identifying as Jewish someone who really wouldn't have agreed with that label. Um, so I decided to choose sources that so, so, sort of self-identified mm, as Jewish. Um, and uh, uh, therefore, I ended up with a, a variety of sources. Uh, my main source uh, are Italian Jewish periodicals. 
where you can find articles written by uh, rabbis, community leaders, uh, teachers in uh, Jewish schools, um, and uh, in any case, uh, writers who really Mm -hmm. self-identify as Mm -hmm. Jewish, uh, and also catechists, sermons, um, and uh, textbooks written for Jewish schools, pamphlets, and uh, in uh, for each and every source uh, I used, I really tried to follow this rule. So is the writer in this case really self-identifying as Jews, as a Jewish, and is he or she, but these are mainly men, uh, is he or she really trying to intervene in this debate mm, about Jewishness and Italianness as a Jew? I think I'm right in saying that a particular aim and, and success of your book is that you show how this construction uh, in Jewish identity in this period through those very particular texts isn't a, a sort of a linear, a straightforward or homogenous narrative in, in any shape or form. Rather, it was very much beset by ambiguities, by, by tensions and also by, by outright conflict, really, between different positions that were held in the Italian Jewish community per se. These tensions really crystallize around a number of very concrete dichotomies or or positional pairings, if you like. Uh, Can you just give us some examples before we begin honing in on some of them? So I would say that, of course, this is true also in uh, for other national cases. Uh, but um, Italian Jews had um, a set of problems, especially after the emancipation, or the emancipation sort of exacerbated some of these problems. So on the one hand, they had to redefine what it means to be Jewish in this new context um, and what it means to be a Jewish citizen, And on the other hand, they had to also contribute to the general discussion on what is, what does it mean to be uh, Italian? That was an ongoing discussion in the majority culture as well, in society and politics. Um, so they, they take part into these conversations and, and, and try to bring them together. Uh, now, for example, this is not always easy. And uh, uh, one of the first dichotomies they try to establish Um, is uh, the dichotomy between uh, the private and the public, which was, uh, of course, a very popular uh, binary uh, way of of viewing politics and society. Uh, This is not a Jewish thing. Uh, But they they, um, use these categories of the private sphere and public sphere uh, to try and um, make sense of the... um, Uh, differences between Jewish identity and Italian identity. In this case, Jewish identity is redefined as being primarily a religious identity um, in a, um, when, where religion has, I would say, um, a meaning that is very much uh, possible only in uh, a secularized environment because it's a very private meaning of religion. Um, so re- Jewishness would be connected to religion and to the private sphere. They very often say we will be Jews in our homes and in synagogues, uh, while in the public sphere we will be 
Italians, like everybody else. So this is the uh, um, the, the main dichotomy. And uh, I wanted, I, when I decided to write the book, I decided to reproduce this dichotomy, dividing the book into two parts, the first one dedicated to the private sphere and the second one dedicated to the public sphere. But what I really want to show is how this dichotomy doesn't work, of course, mm -hmm. because it is not really possible to divide uh, these two aspects mm -hmm. so clearly. So let's, in that case, have a quick or rather more detailed look at one of those conflicts. I was really struck reading your book by the centrality of concerns around the body. Uh, there is, of course, the female body and in particular that of the mother and the wife, which you discuss um, in relation to the role of the family um, in the Jewish community as a whole. You also pay attention then to the male body, not least by a discussion around circumcision. Um, and, and that looks then more at the, uh, the conflict between religion and a science. But to start us off with, um, the kinship that is established through birth by matrilineal descent in Judaism in Italy at the time, you look specifically at concerns around marriage and the purity of, of, of the female body. How do they relate to self-representations of Jewish identity? Yes, thank you. This is a very important point, and it actually allows me to uh, elaborate on uh, another dichotomy, uh, so to speak, which is the one between um, individual Jewish identity and collective Jewish identity. So on the one hand, we can say uh, that, simplifying things a little bit, but we can say that in this new political context and cultural context, the Jewish identity of the individual doesn't pose many problems. Mm. Uh, while uh, the uh, collective identity, the survival, mm, the articulation of a collective identity, a Jewish collective identity, does pose many problems, uh, or potentially does uh, so, and it has really to be redefined. Um, and uh, the category of religion is not enough mm, to make sense of this collective identity or is not perceived to be good enough uh, to uh, make sense of this collective identity. Um, in the uh, Jewish case, um, it is religion is strictly connected to nature and to the body uh, via the matrilineal principle, because at least in Orthodox Judaism, uh, one person is Jewish if he or she is born of a Jewish mother. So there is a, a clear connection to the body and to something that is related to nature. Uh, and the body is per se, of course, uh, the object of conversations and discussions. If we think of the 19th century, we think of the medical side sciences, psychoanalysis, uh, anthropology, racial studies and racial and racist in many cases. Um, so there is very much a focus on the body. Uh, now, in the um, uh, discussions I studied, um, uh, these uh, Jewish writers uh, focus very much on women and on the female body um, because, uh, uh, primarily because this is the connection to uh, uh, belonging to this Jewish collectivity. Um, and um, they articulate um, Jew the, the, the boundaries of the community using the category of religion, but also using the category of of um, stock and uh, race, uh, 
uh, especially uh, from the 1880s onwards, uh, because this help uh, mixing these categories together sort of helps sort of defining this Jewish collective identity, which cannot be articulated only in religious terms. Um, and the women are seen as, at the same time, uh, the major strength of the Jewish community because they are the ones who are sort of transmitting the, the, this belonging to the Jewish community. Uh, but at the same time, they are seen as potentially the weak uh, link um, and um, they become the focus of um, propaganda, for example, against exogamy, uh, against intermarriage, uh, because, of course, the protection of women becomes um, crucial in this the protection or the control, depending on how you want to see it, of women becomes crucial in this setting. Exogamy in this case meaning relationships or marriage with a non-Jewish exactly. partner. Exactly, exactly, which in Italy means usually Catholic yes, uh, woman or man. So intermarriage becomes uh, one of the uh, crucial uh, uh, points in these debates because intermarriage is seen as potentially um, being uh, extremely uh, destructive for, for the uh, community uh, in terms of uh, cultural loss, but also in terms of the loss of bodies of people intended mm -hmm. in a very material mm -hmm. sense. Um, in fact, if we look actually at uh, statistics regarding intermarriage and studies regarding intermarriage in the long term, we can safely say that this is not the case. So you can, if you look at Jewish history in a long chronological perspective, then you see that you have very often intermarriages and then a couple of generations afterwards you have people going back you have boundaries are really very fluid. They're not as rigid as they are portrayed in these texts. Mm -hmm. But uh, these texts do portray intermarriage as uh, an, uh, an incredibly dangerous mm -hmm. thing. Um, and the propaganda against intermarriage is uh, direct, directed mainly uh, at women mm -hmm. uh, who are exactly perceived to be sort of the guardians of this boundary. Interestingly, though, you have also a chapter in which you look at specifically that problem. So who counts as Jewish? Who really is properly Jewish, as you now explained in the context of, of, of marriage? And you do this by looking at the male body um, and specifically, of course, the question of the circumcised male um, and uh, discussions, if I recall well, around um, is an uncircumcised male still considered to be Jewish or not? And that also, in, in your words, Uh, has an impact on how Jewish community leaders want to see themselves in their religious beliefs while very much aware of the scientific um, developments that are going on and that are obviously also very much part of the public discourse. Can you just say a few more things around that particular angle as well? Yes, of course. So the debates were very much present in the minds of Italian rabbis and community leaders discussing these things at the time. At the same time, you have a medical debate on circumcision, especially in the UK and in North America, uh, the uh, um, the uh, circum circumcision seen as a potentially healthy medical practice um, and uh, you have circumcision being linked to all sorts of stereotype rega stereotypes mm -hmm. 
very ancient stereotypes regarding the, the Jewish male body, circumcision as being a sign of an effeminate uh, body, um, and therefore an effeminate body of, of uh, someone who would not be able to perform the duty of citizen. Uh, for example, the main duty of a citizen is, of a male citizen, uh, is at the time understood as the uh, uh, ability to uh, defend the, the fatherland, of course, mm-hmm. uh, uh, fighting, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and circumcision also comes into the discussion regarding the uh, fitness uh, of Jews to uh, become actually citizens, uh, because circumcision is interpreted uh, also in terms of uh, this effeminate nature of the of the uh, Jewish male body, and the, if we see the debate from the Jewish perspective, um, we have. Uh, a, a mixture of um, the debate uh, is very much about secularization. Mm-hmm. So what you said, uh, exactly what, what you were saying. So uh, there are a number of Jewish uh, male infants who are not circumcised at this point. Uh, and what, how can religious law be adapted mm, uh, to these new uh, sort of evidence. And then, of course, all the other elements come into play into the conversation. Thank you. Um, Can I draw you now on a slightly wider question regarding institutional Judaism? I'm intrigued in particular in how you examine concerns that by the obviously in itself very positive fact that uh, Italian Jews were granted full uh, citizenship, but that at this point the state for the first time established a direct route between the secular, say, state institutions and the rights that they were guarding, and individual citizens from the Jewish communities. So in that sense, at this point, there were some concerns by the Jewish community leaders that their role and their um, individual community institutions were sort of cut out, if you like, um, as a mediator between those two. Um, how is this discussed in the, in the sources that you consult? Yes, this is another important point, and it, it brings us back to this dichotomy between individuals and, and communities and, and collectivities. Uh, Jewish communities become, after the emancipation, mainly providers of religious services. So their role is, um, is not as important as it was before uh, legal emancipation. Um, and moreover, uh, in Italy, uh, there is no um, homogeneity homogeneous legislation regarding Jewish communities until 1930. So until between 1861, the unification, up until 1930, you have different Jewish communities in different areas uh, being uh, actually uh, different legal entities. In some cases, you have, for example, mandatory membership for all Jews residing in a certain territory. Membership to the local Jewish communities was mandatory. In other cases, is you have voluntary associations. So it's also very difficult to draw a general picture here. Uh, but uh, community leaders were uh, very worried about the survival of Jewish communities. Um, and for one, one example of this is, uh, which is also very, very easy to understand, regards uh, sort of money matters, because the Jewish communities were funded by contributions paid by members. And uh, uh, this actually had always been the uh, 
object of controversies actually over the centuries. But after the emancipation, some uh, individuals decide they do not want to contribute anymore to the Jewish community uh, because the Jewish communities are not the mandatory mediator between the individual and the state anymore. Um, so uh, some members decide to defer or, or actually suspend payments. And of course, community leaders panic at this point. And what is interesting is that that they try to, uh, as Jewish communities, try to assert their rights by uh, going to and asking for support uh, from civil courts. Mm -hmm. uh, so you have an interaction here between a sort of a religious community, religious institution, whose legal status is uh, not very well defined at this point uh, or in a transitional moment and then civil courts and individuals actually claiming that they have the right to choose whether they want to be member of members of a Jewish community or not and this means also uh, they want to have a right to choose what kind of Jews they want to be uh, the the underlining the the, the, the question uh, that is behind all these discussions is also what is the nature of Jewish Jewishness at this point, and who has the authority to define this Jewishness? In effect, uh, really, the tensions that we've been discussing here specifically show up this really interesting dialectic between integrating into majority culture but maintaining exceptional status and to what extent that exceptional status was acceptable and gave a positive signal towards um, the, the community or possibly a negative signal to the majority culture. Um, and I was very intrigued to follow some of those discussions. You quote the rabbi of, of Mantua, Mortara, for example, who in, in 1864 put it in the following way. I still love freedom, he says, but even more and more fervently, I love equality with my fellow citizens. So these tensions really build up around questions of, uh, of freedom on the one hand and, and equality on the other. Yes, yes. And Marco Mortara, uh, who was, as you said, the rabbi of Mantua, he wrote on several occasions uh, about this uh, tension. And uh, um, uh, quite famously, he wrote a pamphlet uh, on um, marriage, uh, because when um, the Italian state uh, allows civil marriage uh, in, uh, his, in its new civil code, uh, which enters in force in, on the 1st of January 1866, uh, um, we have a, a form of civil marriage, uh, which is an indissoluble civil marriage. Um, and this creates some tensions with the Jewish community because Jewish religion actually allows divorce, mm -hmm. uh, a certain very limited form of divorce, and we could debate this at length. Uh, mm -hmm. But still, divorce is a possibility. Um, uh, and uh, the new civil law uh, prohibits divorce for everybody, for all Italian citizens. And we can see here, uh, potentially, a clash between religious freedom and uh, the civil law. Civil law sort of contrasting in this case with religious freedom and with religious law. Um, and Mortara um, very clearly highlights this tension. And he, in the end, says that equality is 
at this stage, in this context, uh, the most important uh, point, equality with other citizens, needs to prevail uh, upon uh, religious freedom in this case, or uh, uh, religious law. So in a way, in this case of marriage, Jews should renounce for the time being mm, uh, to divorce, possibility of getting a divorce in order to be fully integrated into the Italian community. So how did these tensions that you've just been discussing and the integration um, into majority Italian society fare towards the end of the period that you were discussing, uh, specifically the participation of Jewish citizens in World War I, um, which obviously uh, put the, uh, the challenges, uh, let's say, to, on a particularly difficult um, basis. Allow me to say one thing before we, we go into World War One, and this thing is that actually we already see a, a, a very complex picture at the end of the 19th century and the very beginning of the 20th century, uh, because there are new elements that come, in, come into the discussion. So one is the growing antisemitism, not so much in Italy, where antisemitism does exist, but doesn't become uh, a tool for political mobilization at this point. It will become a tool for political mobilization only later on and with fascism and not even at the very beginning of the fascist regime of the fascist era um, but in, in the rest of Europe and especially if we look at France of course the Dreyfus affair uh, and also in Ger at Germany, Austria and if you look at Eastern Europe of course and Russia uh, there is uh, a trend towards growing anti-Semitism. Uh, there is what we could call a refugee crisis from Eastern Europe, people fleeing Eastern Europe to come to Western Europe. Uh, again, Italy is not directly involved into this process, but um, it is involved in the debates on this problem. You have Zionism and the emergence of Zionism, uh, especially political Zionism, I'm thinking Theodor Herzl mostly, of course, uh, Zionism is a very complex thing, but I'm thinking especially of political Zionism. And it enters into the debate kind of claiming that uh, Judaism and Jewishness should become a main feature uh, of the public life of Jews. So it kind of disrupts this uh, idea that you could have a dichotomy between the private and the public sphere. Um, of course, you have colonial ambitions, uh, also Italian colonial ambitions, not very successful, but the debate is there and it also complicates the picture. And the general tendency, generalizing quite a bit, but a general tendency towards imagining these boundaries between nations, between communities as becoming uh, uh, more and more rigid. Mm -hmm. And so there is no space for fluid identities. Uh, this is also brings together many elements. So when you come to World War One, World War One is at the very beginning in 1914 when Italy is not taking part in the war, uh, not yet, uh, you have actually Italian Jews uh, debating, and the debate is uh, between Zionists and anti-Zionists. So there is uh, a tension between Zionists and anti-Zionists, with, with Zionists claiming that it is a pity to have 
Jews fighting against one another. While um, and anti-Zionists claiming basically that uh, uh, national belonging, the fatherland, should always come first. Again, I'm simplifying quite a bit. Uh, in 1915, when Italy enters into the war, we have actually the the overall picture becomes more homogeneous in a sense that even Zionist periodicals and Zionist uh, writers uh, and intellectuals uh, tend to agree at that point um, that the national effort sort of at that moment in that context sort of comes first. Mm -hmm. Um, And and Jews have the opportunity to show that they deserved the emancipation. That is, of course, the language of the time. I would never say that myself, but that is more or less the the general idea, how the war is presented in these sources. Mm -hmm. Jews can show that they are very uh, fit for citizenship, fit for war, uh, able to defend the fatherland, able to pay the tribute of blood uh, uh, to the fatherland. and, and this sort of fuels the illusion in a way that the war can finally solve all the tensions, the remaining tensions, and also the suspicions uh, that could be and were actually still alive in parts of the uh, uh, Italian society and culture. Uh, the uh, post-war actually shows that this is absolutely not the case because the First World War exacerbates all sorts of other conflicts that in the end sort of uh, uh, produce the result of the Jewish minority and minorities in general, but the Jewish minority in particular, being targeted as uh, a foreign um, sort of entity. So 1918 really marks a caesura, if you like, of that first period of Jewish emancipation and the making of Italian Jewish communities, and it becomes a very different story in the rest of the 20th century. Yes, we we do not have much uh, research being done on the 1920s, not yet, and that would be a, that is a very interesting transitional moment in a way, um, but. Um, 1918 does mark it, it can be seen as a turning point, although I wouldn't uh, sort of um, uh, overestimate mm, the, the changes that arrive at that precise moment. Um, because if we, if we do look at the 1920s, uh, what we see is still actually Italian Jews being um, continuing to present themselves as being very well integrated and very uh, uh, patriotic. Um, and actually, this is also one of the reasons why uh, uh, many Jews decide to support fascism in the early moments of the foundation of the fascist movement and the early times of the fascist uh, regime, even after 1922 when when Mussolini comes to power, because anti-Semitism was not one of the main features Mm -hmm. of the fascist program at the very beginning. So, yes, it does represent, 1918 does represent uh, a turning point, but, of course, there are also many continuities that we can follow throughout the 1920s. Which we would then have to take up in another conversation, I think. Yes. Carlotta, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a real privilege to talk to you. Thank you. It was a pleasure.